It's good to be here with you all tonight. I want to be careful with this, with this stand. The stage makes me nervous. You don't make me nervous. The stage makes me nervous. I think last time I preached, I was up here, you probably didn't even see it, but the stand almost fell, and I was a nervous wreck. But um, anyways, it's good to be with you all tonight. Um, tonight, the sermon text is All We Need is Found in Christ, and I invite you to tur- turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. Um, before we read it, let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we do give you praise um, that we could gather again as your people to conclude this Lord's day. Lord, as you've spoken to us in the morning, we pray that you would speak to us again through your word. We, we long to hear from you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So before I read the text tonight, I'm going to ask you to do a search and find, but pay attention for these words, in him, in Christ, or with Christ. You're going to see them a lot. This is our text, Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight, if you have any experience growing up in the church, you're probably not going to hear anything that you haven't heard before, but that doesn't mean that you should check out now. In fact, this passage in many ways is the sweet spot of Colossians. It's that famous in him passage in the New Testament. You saw that phrase in him or with him in Christ appear at least nine times in our short text tonight. And here's the problem, is that words of Scripture, which are most familiar, are passages that we've heard over and over again, oftentimes become wrote to us, and their beauty is easily lost. Think the Lord's Prayer, which we pray every Sunday, or the Apostles' Creed, which we usually recite together as God's people on Communion Sundays, like we did this morning. Think of John 3.16 and Psalm 23. We have the habit of tuning out what we think we know best or we fail to think deeply about the things that we have already grasped, and we're robbed of finding new treasures in God's Word. So don't tune out tonight. Every week, Sean usually prays before he preaches that we would find glorious riches in whatever portion of the gospel of the Scripture that we would find ourselves in. And while the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he came to rescue sinners, can be very complex, and it can be sometimes confusing, the gospel can also be quite simple. And my hope is that tonight that you won't tune out, but that God will show us by His Spirit wonderful treasures that can only be found in Christ's life-giving Word. So tonight, friends, tonight is all about pushing on 
in our faith in Christ and leaning all the way in to the gifts of the gospel, pushing on and leaning in. That's what tonight is about. When Paul is writing this letter to the church, the people on the ground, his audience, were in the middle of a literal firestorm. Many people were disclaiming the authority of Jesus, who he is, and all that he taught. The temptation for these new Christians was a few things, but I think two options stand out, and we're going to think about them for a minute. One was that they might simply give up and walk away from the faith entirely, looking for what they need and someone or something else. In Hebrews, we see a similar message. In light of the persecution that the people were enduring, the preacher tells them to push on and to lean into the gospel no matter what the cost, even if the cost is their very own lives. But another option for these Christians in Colossae is that they might try to supplement the gospel with what is contrary to the doctrine of Jesus, um, but is popular in the day. They might take traditions of the Jewish faith and add them as requirements to the gospel. Or further, they might, on one hand, embrace the other various religions, philosophies, traditions, or worldviews of the day, along with the teachings of Jesus that they wanted to hold on to. And Paul simply is reminding the church this, that they have everything that they need in Christ. They have everything that they need in Christ. His encouragement in these, is that these Christians push on and that they lean all of the way into the gospel um, and the riches that they have graciously been given in and through Jesus. For a lot of our younger people, if you're in elementary, middle school, and high school, if you haven't run off to four corners, you may often think that the Bible was written so long ago to people in another culture, and it's hard to relate your life to what the Bible and what Jesus is saying. But don't you know what it is like for people to discredit the gospel or to believe something else entirely? When your friends live in a way that is in opposition to the Christian life and they eagerly want you to come along with them, you know that you have a decision to make. Will you choose Jesus and his way of life or will you choose someone or something else instead? What the people faced in Colossae is what you and I, the adults in the room, we face every day. People all around us daily are discrediting Jesus and his message, who he is and the message and the life that he showed us to live. Some people flatly encourage us to disown Jesus, and some encourage us to come along with them and to taste and see what their perspective or their way of life might offer. And believe it or not, if we stand with Christ over these next 30 years, I guarantee you that you will in some way suffer personally for your decision to honor Christ and to live the life that he has called his people to live. Your commitments, dear Christian, which are the commitments of Jesus, will not be the popular commitments of our society. And when that time comes, you will have a decision to make. Will you fight the good fight like Timothy, or like Paul encouraged his protege Timothy, or will you walk away in search of someone or something else to meet your needs because Jesus and what he offers seem insufficient or unpopular? Obviously, that is the one choice, to just walk away from Christ, but the other is, in my opinion, much more problematic. People will want the wisdom of the world and all that it offers, but they will want to try to hold on and keep Jesus too. Supplementing the gospel with the commitments of the world, the flesh, and the devil is dangerous because people dupe themselves into believing that they can have both when Jesus flatly tells us that we can't. I think this is why so many churches have embraced a life of sin contrary to the gospel, where God's word is free to be edited at will when it conflicts with the wisdom of the world, making it in effect no longer the infallible and errant and only rule for our faith in life. I think we've seen much of this supplementing the gospel with the wisdom of the world type of things in the church today, and it's discouraging and terrifying because rather than rejecting the gospel outright, people have deceived themselves by thinking that they can have the world and have Jesus, 
at the very same time. But the truth of the matter is that choosing Jesus oftentimes means rejecting the world or the people we love or the things that would make us feel good because we found all that we need in Jesus Christ and he is sufficient. When I came to, when Ashley and I came to Memphis, um, aka the South, which I thought Memphis was the Mid-South and found out quickly East Memphis is the South, um, saw some seersucker and I was like, what is that? Um, but Richie told me, and he said this, and I've never forgotten it, and I think, I think I remember exactly what he said, but he said this to me. He said, you will have to convince people who think that they've been Christians their entire life that they, in fact, truly are not Christians so that you can share the gospel with them with the hope that they might truly become Christians. That's fascinating. The big danger or threat is when our commitment to Christ becomes mixed with a commitment to someone else or something else. And dear friends, that's a dangerous, toxic cocktail for the Christian and one we must stay away from at all costs. All that said, for those of us who love Jesus and know him in a real way, Paul's encouragement for us tonight, like I said before, is to push on and to lean all the way into the gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you saw the title of the sermon tonight, all, all we need is found in Jesus, you may have thought of the Beatles classic, right? All we need is love. And while Jesus is love in love's truest sense, I don't think that's what the Beatles were saying. But the point is this, at the end of the day, Christian, you have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. And so first, pushing on. We see this in verses 6 and 7, and we'll look at them um, together for a minute. We are to push on in two ways. First, by receiving Christ, or remembering our reception of him. And the second, by embracing the results of our receiving Christ. Paul says in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. As a pastor, you hear many statements that honestly just make you cringe. And one of them that is irregular um, is when someone talks about their conversion. They say something like this, I accepted Jesus into my heart. And while that sounds nice, what does it actually really mean? Um, for one, language like that I don't think is found in Scripture. Um, and oftentimes it seems like the choice to receive Jesus into our heart was single-handedly made by the recipient, and he, Jesus could have easily been rejected. And for all of us good Reformed people, um, we believe in irresistible grace, so we question that kind of stuff. But Paul says here, therefore as you've received Christ, what does he mean? I think this is important. In our text tonight, we're going to see a few different words that Paul uses that are actually Jewish words, and this is the first one. But he says, the word receive was actually a common word in the Jewish tradition, which meant the passing on of teaching or traditions from one person or one generation to another. And Paul says at the end of verse 7, just as you were taught. So basically, I think the point is this. When these Christians received Christ, they didn't just accept him into their heart. They accepted Jesus and his entire message when they came to faith in him. And this message of Jesus was to be believed fully, and it was to be passed on, not to be edited. Receiving Christ is more than just saying a prayer and moving on. It's embracing Jesus and all that he taught and passing on those truths to others. When these Christians received Christ, there are beautiful results of having received Christ. And what are a few of those results of someone who has received Christ? Paul shows us at the end of verse 6 and through all of verse 7 with these beautiful gospel metaphors. He says that the Christians are to walk in him, being rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. The first result of a person who has received Christ is that they walk with Jesus. Christians talk the talk, but then they walk the walk. They're not phonies, but they, as much as they can, live for Christ and his glory and his honor. What Paul is saying is that a Christian's life is now centered completely and totally on Jesus and we're to conduct our entire lives centered around him. 
The word walk, again, is another familiar and popular Jewish word, and it actually meant this, the ethical conduct in life that is lived out that aligns with the kind of life that Jesus called his followers to embrace. This is continuous walking where we take the steps of life with Jesus by our side. Another translation the NIV says, continue to live in him. I remember in high school, I was confronted with the question, do I believe what I say that I believe? Do I believe what my faith teaches me I should believe? My friends, most of them had no commitment to Jesus, and they believed things contrary to the gospel, and they lived in ways that were clearly in opposition to the gospel, and they would try to drag me along. Sometimes I'd go, and sometimes I wouldn't, but being in their mere presence always was an opportunity for me to embrace what they embraced. Psalm 1 is a wonderful passage that you can go and read later, and there's lots of allusions to Psalm 1 in our text. That just might be a Brad thing. No other commentator mentioned that. However, this is what Psalm 1 says, that the man who is blessed does not do these things, walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And I think there's a progression there. There are some people who think that there's not, but I do. When we walk with people who live contrary to the gospel, their beliefs become appealing to us, or at least they have the opportunity to become appealing to us. When we stand with them, we begin to embrace them, and when we sit with them, we've given full approval. So the question for the believer is, have you fallen out of step with Jesus? Does your life and what you embrace align with the gospel, or does it not? That's something to think about, because we all walk through life aligning our way of living on something or on someone. Many of you may not know this, but I have a younger brother. His name's Andrew, and he lives and breathes the world of bonsai trees, or as he would say, bonsai. I, don't, I say bonsai still. Uh, this is his profession. He's, he actually was the apprentice of the top bonsai guy in the United States for three years. He studied under one of the top three bonsai guys in the world in Japan. My brother works on trees for clients. Some of them, you might know their names. Um, they're some of the richest people in America. Um, that are hundreds of years old, and they're planted in these Japanese pots that are also hundreds of years old. They're large and heavy, and their root systems are intricate, and they've been meticulously cared for daily for decades, or in some cases, centuries. And I've been to his bonsai garden in Portland, Oregon, and for someone who still has no interest in bonsai trees, the largest, oldest, and most mature trees are wonderful and beautiful pieces of art. Their pictures belong in magazines, um, and they're found in art shows. When you see these trees for the first time, they almost stop you in your tracks. They're very simply beautiful and majestic, much like a Picasso or a Van Gogh. And this is the picture that Paul gives us of the Christian, that we are like a magnificent tree. We're rooted in Christ, we're built up in Christ, and we're established in the faith. Being rooted in Christ is a past action that happened once and for all when our eyes were opened to our sin and our Savior Jesus. When we came to saving faith in Christ, we were given a connection to Jesus that could never be severed. We are completely and fully rooted in Jesus. Like trees receive their life-giving nourishment from the soil and roots, Christians receive sustaining life and joy and happiness and peace from their Savior Jesus. Another result of receiving Christ is that we're built up in Christ. I wish I could show you a picture, but almost two years ago in March, before the lockdowns and COVID happened, um, we planted at our house two American red maple trees that came in five-gallon buckets. The trunks have probably increased in size tenfold, and their height and width has probably more than quadrupled. These maples are fast-growing trees, and their branches have shot up and shot out. Christians not only are rooted in Christ, but we're built up in Him. This means that we progressively grow into the new people that Jesus has called us to be, and this growing in grace is enabled by the Spirit of God. The last result of receiving Christ is that we're to become established or strengthened in the faith. 
What does this mean, to be strengthened or established in the faith? It means that we are to continue to daily live in ways that strengthen our faith in Christ by putting ourselves in regular situations where we hear the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We grow in our faith when we, when we read the Word of God in our homes or when we listen to it in our cars, when we look at it during lunch breaks or when we begin or end our day. And we focus on the Word of God in corporate worship and in our personal lives so that we might continue to grow in the wisdom of God so that we might begin to see His ways and love them more and more. I often tell students um, in middle school and high school that if we believe what we say we really believe, then we would read and pay attention to the Word of God more. It would be strange if someone, maybe you, said that you had a best friend and then you admitted that you'd never talked or communicated with them on a regular basis. I'd tell you that's weird. We talk and listen to people who we care most about and we give them our full attention and our full and undivided attention. We call God our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend, but some of us rarely take the time to talk to Him in prayer or hear from Him through the reading and preaching of His Word. And this is how Paul says that we are to be strengthened and to become established. You may have skimmed over it during the scripture reading, but Paul says that we are to become established in the faith just as we were taught. So there's teaching that strengthens our faith in Christ, and there's teaching that weakens our faith in Christ. For these Christians Paul is speaking to, he's saying that the ministry of his friend Epaphras, a faithful minister of the gospel, see chapter 1, has strengthened their faith in Christ. Praise the Lord. Why should we live in a way that our faith in Christ increases over time? Well, very clearly, Paul here is saying, so that we might stand firm against false teaching, with the result that we might walk, with the result being that we might stand firm and push on. Being established in the faith gives us a weapon to discern between what is godly wisdom, that which is right and good and true, and wisdom of the world, the flesh and the devil, which is deceptive, evil, and false. So Christians push on by receiving Christ and embracing the results that come with our profession. But secondly, Christians lean all of the way in to the gifts of the gospel. We see that in verses 8 through 15. We see this in four ways. The danger, the person of Christ, our union with Christ, and then lastly, with the paradox of the gospel. So Paul gets at sharing these gifts by first showing us that there's a danger that we must guard ourselves from. We've already talked about it at length. The danger is that we must guard ourselves from being deceived into believing the values of the world over the values of Christ. Paul uses more illustrative words. He says, don't be taken captive or don't be kidnapped by the values of the world. We see this in verse 8 when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. As I've already said, Paul has used familiar words with the Jewish tradition throughout this passage. Remember how he talked about receiving and walking. Now Paul actually in the original language, was being a jokester because he writes a pun in the original language. The word for take captive is sulagoigan, a very rare word, and Paul intentionally used the word take captive or sulagoigan that sounds like synagogue with the implication being don't be taken captive by the Jewish thought and leaders who worship in the synagogue and who are denying Jesus and his message. They're trying to kidnap you and snatch you away from the wisdom of God. Paul's desire is that these Christians would be so familiar with the Word and the ways of God that they would be able to discern between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom and that they, would be, that they wouldn't be duped into believing teaching that is contrary to the gospel. Not only did pe- the people in the first century need to be on guard from the wisdom of the world, but we too as well need to be on guard against teaching and wisdom that attacks the claims and the person of Jesus. 
So Paul shows us the danger, but he also gives us this beautiful picture in a few words about the person of Jesus, and it's really important. He says in verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's what Sean talked about this morning in John 5. This is a significant claim because it's the one that the false teachers Paul had been talking about have been trying to discredit, that Jesus is God. The simple statement is complex, and it's this profound truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In the person of Jesus, God fully dwells because Jesus is God. One commentator said simply and beautifully that Jesus is the center of God's saving activity. Many people believed that Jesus couldn't be fully God and fully man at the same time. Many said that Christ was just one God among many gods. Some said that he was less than God. But Paul clearly says that in Christ, all of the divine attributes were contained by Jesus. Jesus is the spitting image of God the Father, who is a spirit, because he is God in human form. If you want to know more, look at Jesus in the flesh, Hebrews 1. As we are considering leaning all the way into the gifts of the gospel, we've talked about the danger to guard against, we've talked about the person of Christ, and now we see these beautiful gifts that are given to the Christian um, in verses um, 10 through 14. So the third way that we lean into the glorious gifts of the gospel is through our union with Christ. And like I said, we see that in verses 10 through 14. This is what Paul says. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Do you see how intricately connected the Christian is to Christ? We're united to Christ, and from our union with him, we're the recipients of these many gifts that Jesus gladly gives to those he loves. Paul says in verse 10 that we've been filled with Christ. World-renowned theologian N.T. Wright said it best when he wrote that God intends to flood the lives of men and women and ultimately the whole creation with his own love, power, and richness, and that he has already begun to put his plan into effect through Christ by his Holy Spirit. The Christian has been flooded and filled full with Christ himself and has all of his benefits. When we are filled with Christ and his love, we lack nothing. In Christ, we have all that we need. We're complete. We do not need to look to any, anyone else, to anything else, or anywhere else, because Christ is the Christian's richest gain. And verse, verses 11 and 12, if you've read them, they get a little technical, but the point, I think, is essentially this, that Jesus has done for all believers what circumcision in the Old Testament pointed to, which was a death-to-life transformation by which Jesus gives us new hearts and faith to believe in him. How have we received this new life in Christ? It's through being united to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Paul is saying that just as God powerfully raised Jesus from the dead, we too, through our union with Jesus, have been resurrected from a spiritually dead life to a life that is spiritually alive through the power of God. Paul then says it more plainly in verses 13 and 14, but put simply, he says that all people, because of their sin, have undergone a spiritual death. Kevin DeYoung said it like this, we're not strugglers in need of a helping hand or sinking swimmers in need of a raft. We're stone-cold dead, spiritually lifeless, without a religious pulse, without anything at all to please God. But because of our relationship with Christ, our hearts regain spiritual life. They get a religious pulse, so to say. They're able to receive and love the things of God. And Paul concludes in verse 14 by saying that in Christ, all of our trespasses have been forgiven. How do we receive this forgiveness from Christ? How is the debt set aside? He tells us. It's been nailed to the cross. 
Through our union with Christ, we receive these glorious gifts of the gospel. We're filled full with everything we need for salvation and right living. We receive new hearts and a new life where our wills are restored and we can now choose to live in such a way that is pleasing to God. We receive forgiveness, which comes through the death of Christ on the cross. We see one last way that we can lean all the way into the gifts of the gospel, and it's this, the paradox of the gospel. Christ's death defeated all those who opposed God and his word. You see that in verse 15. In verse 15, this is what Paul says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's fascinating is that the word defeated alludes to being stripped or to being disarmed. I'm sure you've heard there's a former uh, CEO of a major news network who has resigned this past week, and his powers and his influence went away when he sent in his resignation letter. He'd been stripped of his power, his authority, and his influence over that company. Or when a war is taking place and someone surrenders to the opposition, the first thing that happens after they surrender is that they are stripped of their, ar- their arms, and they are disarmed, and they're taken into custody. And through Jesus' death, where he experienced utter shame, embarrassment, and humiliation, where he was stripped of his clothes and his honor and his glory by the hands of evil men, ruthlessly mocked and ridiculed, it is in this moment that Jesus actually was victoriously stripping the world, the rulers and the authorities, of their power, their hold, and their influence on it all. It was in Christ's most humiliating moment that he was triumphing over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he was taking his rightful place at the right hand of God as the ruler and savior, savior of the world. These are all wonderful gifts of the gospel that we should lean all the way into each and every day. But all too often, we want to hold on to Jesus alongside of the treasures of this world. On Saturday, uh, we took, our family took a drive uh, down to the floodplains on the Mississippi River on the Arkansas side, and Ashley reflected that it was interesting that something so beautiful, these uh, amazing trees glassed in thick ice, could be so dangerous, causing significant damage to homes, businesses, and life. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of things that are competing for our attention and for our worship. There's a lot of false teaching in our world today. There's, there's lots of things that promise satisfaction outside of the gospel, and all of these must be avoided at all costs. Yet much of the world and its values have infiltrated the church, with the result being that we want it all, the world and Jesus too. And my friends, tonight, Paul tells us that we can't have both. Jesus is our priceless treasure. We're to push on in our faith with nothing more and nothing less than Jesus himself because we have found all that we need in him. Our affection for him must remain singular, and we are to lean all the way into the gifts of the gospel, our justification, our sanctification, and our union with Christ. My dear friends, I encourage you to push on and lean all the way in to these wonderful gifts given to, to us by our Savior Jesus. You have all that you need in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you um, that you've spoken to us again in your word. Lord, we don't take it for granted that you are a God who still speaks. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have spoken. Lord, we pray that you would take your, take your message to heart tonight, that we would long to live for you and your glory and praise. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.